checking out this episode of Those People, a podcast about people with people. As usual, I'm your host, Mitch Gaines. You can find me at Mitch Gaines just about anywhere on the internet that I want to be found. If this is your first time checking out the show, thank you, thank you, thank you. We're so happy to have you. Those People is a show, as I said, with people, about people, where we explore all the labels that others give us and that we give ourselves. Every episode, we sit down with a different guest and we interview them about their stories, their successes, their struggles, all the important S words, really. But most importantly, we kick it with them about the people who are involved. If you love it, we love you to go out and go tell a friend if you hate it we hate you and please kindly shut the fuck up forever <laughs> i am just kidding about that last part but if you hate the show for real you can shoot me a note at mitchgains at gmail.com and tell me what you hated maybe we will do a little bit better next time as always, I also want to take a quick second to remind all of you who do love the show or just some of those people that we've had on the show, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It really helps other people discover the show. Platforms we're now on include Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, Pocket Cast, and my personal favorite, Radio Public, as well as a whole bunch more. If you happen to be a Google or an Apple listener and you like the show, it'd mean a lot to us if you could rate and review the podcast, but only if you like the show. Save the hate takes for Twitter, where again, you can find me at Mitch Gaines. That's Gaines with a Y because I'm a little bit gay. G-A-Y-N-S. <laughs> my guest today is Brianna Wu, who is a progressive Democrat running to represent the state of Massachusetts' 8th districts in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, she's challenging the Democrat incumbent Stephen Lynch for a second time in this process. She's a tech founder, a video game developer, a fighter for women's rights, a whole bunch more. Her career arc has been painted with either controversy or triumph, depending on which side of the aisle that you're standing on and what day of the week it happens to be. She's gone toe-to-toe with both the trolls of 8chan, the entrenched elites of politics, and lived to tell all of the tales. And so I'll let her get to telling it in her own words. Welcome to the show, Brianna. It's so good to be here. I'd say it's Brianna with an I, but I'm also a little gay, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, the Mitch Gaines moniker comes uh, from a weird point in sales where you know yeah. people are chasing gains and it's a bunch of very like rogue <laughs> culture. Uh, and I, like I said, I'm a little bit gay, and that's yeah. very much not yeah. my scene, uh, yeah. but I kind of adopted the, the name, and it just kind of stuck. So I like it. I would actually classify myself as more than a little bit gay, but that's <laughs> just me. So. What, what percentage? <laughs> well, I, you know, I've had so many... I was really surprised when I married my husband, actually, because so many of my partners... Uh, to be honest, it was a lot more women than than guys, and I... I mean, I've, I've always been into some guys. It's just a lower percentage. I met Frank, and it was just really surprising to me. We were engaged within three weeks. We got married. Wait, you were, you were engaged within three weeks? We were weeks? engaged within three weeks. We were married 11 months later, and we've been married really for a 11 years. Really, a long engagement there. Yeah, yeah. So you just know when you know. But I, wow. I always feel like I kind of betrayed the gay community. <laughs> like, you like, you know. led this secret gay lifestyle right. here for 10 years, Absolutely. and then went out and got a husband in yes, three weeks. Yes, yes, there it is. So. <laughs> well, that, you, you're still gay enough for me. I'm, I'm only you. a pansexual, I so I think I'm like 42% gay. <laughs> so you, you outqueer me. You have okay. more stripes than the rainbow. That's you're going to be all right. That's great. Uh, I, I like to do two things here to start off with every guest. One is my, my favorite fun part of the show. I need a conversational safe word. So the way this works is very similar to a sexual <laughs> safe word. You give me a safe word. Anytime in this conversation where this gets weird, this gets awkward, this gets uncomfortable, you say that safe word, we'll stop and move on. If we need to imply that safe word too many times, just like in sex, we should probably just stop and go home because this shit got really weird. Okay. 
What is your conversational safe word? GFY. say GFY. <laughs> fair. That's, that's it. That, that is fair. Although I feel like people say that to me very frequently <laughs> in my real life. So I'm glad that's not always the case. All right. Awesome. Uh, and the second question I always like to ask just to start off with kind of uh, to set like a backdrop here and start kind of from the beginning. Where are you from? So I know you're from Mississippi originally. Like yeah. what part of Mississippi and kind of what's life like for young Brianna? Well, it's a hard discussion to have because I got adopted into this right wing of re- family of religious extremists. You know, my very first memory in life was, uh, frankly, my family throwing me away like a piece of garbage uh, being adopted. And I got, um, you know, my, uh, my adoptive family, uh, they, they picked me up and we moved to the deep south. I don't know exactly what year it was, but uh, I think I was maybe maybe five, six, seven, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the place I've spent the most time besides and where, Massachusetts. where were you born? Were you born In West South? Virginia. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, uh, my, my biological family, uh, you know, I've never actually met my biological mom. It's something I keep meaning to do because I'm 42 and she's <laughs> got to be older, so it's an adventure I need to go on while I still can. Uh, But that was in uh, West Virginia, and my father was in a naval base nearby uh, where he was getting his medical degree. They couldn't have children. They ended up adopting me. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) We started off the show by saying you you were more than a little bit gay. You grew up with right-wing extremists in Mississippi. terrible. So I imagine between seven and whenever the fuck you can move, life's a little little difficult. Yeah, it really was. What is life in Mississippi like? So, so, sorry, I'm trying to do a little math. Yeah, yeah, 42, that that means childhood for you was like the 80s? Back in the 80s, Okay, so yeah, yeah, we're talking 80s Mississippi. Yeah, it was terrible. One of my first memories in life, and gosh, I feel like we're starting so heavy, but let's get real (laughs) here. One of my first memories in life was uh, in the 80s when I entered third grade. Uh, there was a kid in my class named Joseph, and he made uh, a decision that ended his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told his parents that he felt he was gay at that age, and um, they sent him off to a uh, to a reprogramming camp. To be really honest with you, uh, when we talk about you know um, you know gay whatever you call it therapy conversion, uh, conversion therapy, he was uh, he was subjected to that at a very young age. I will never forget, he just disappeared from school. This is one of my best friends in the entire world. And uh, he comes back the next year. It's the first day of fourth grade. And he comes in, he's wearing a white seersucker suit. And he's got a, um, a bouquet of flowers mm. for a girl in my grade named Lori, declaring his love for her. Oh, Sorry, that um, took a turn. No, it's it's it's. I it thought the white seersucker was like him proclaiming no, his gayness. No, now it's no, like his coming it's out the other soon. way. It was oh the other god! Way. Okay, um, at least he was well dressed for the occasion. And, yeah, <laughs> and it really taught me from the the word go to kind of hide who I was and not be honest with people. So um, it was a really uncomfortable place to grow up because you're trying to fit in. And yeah, I was different in a million different ways in Mississippi. I'm interested in tech. Don't care about football or who's <laughs> dating who, you know, religious in a roundabout way, but, you know, very indirectly. Um, and it just was a culture I never really felt like I, um, like I fit into. And then, you know, about seventh or eighth grade, I realized how different I was. And I go into this tailspin of a depression that really ate up most of my uh, early years. It was a very difficult place to grow up. And, and so I guess when... 
what is the family dynamic like at that point? Because you kind of alluded to like they're they're religious, they're right wing, and yeah. like you're pretty much all you're all of the opposites <laughs> of these things. But like it's you said, really you kind of true. have to hide your true self. I it's assume really you're true. obviously not out at this point. No, I'm assuming. no, yeah. no. Um, well, I would I, I left home okay. as soon as I could. I remember. And how old were you when you left? Oh gosh, I left for college at 18, okay. and uh, you know immediately I start. Uh, finding ways to come out of the closet. And I I moved to D.C. not long after that. Uh, it's so funny. I was talking to Chelsea Manning the other day, and we found out that we were both in D.C. at the same point in our <laughs> lives, hitting the same gay bars. <laughs> and, like, partying in the same places. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it was it was a... Uh, I had my real life, and then I had going home for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I would... I, it would physically manifest, like you feel your hands shaking, you'd mm. feel yourself just miserable. Um, it was a it was a very difficult childhood. I'd hope can, you don't mind. Can me I ask say. a weird question? Like yeah. How how long do you keep going back for holidays, and like why? At, well, at what point did, were you just like? I, I assume those weren't like pleasant when you're going. To, like no. you're 20 years old, you're figuring out like how to be out at college. You're like you know well, trying to figure no. out your whole identity, and then right. all of a sudden you go home for Christmas, and right. it's like fuck you, we hate you. Yeah. Like why are you doing this to us? It it was very hard because think about it from my point of view. My first memory is um, my family throwing me away, mm. um, and I knew when I came out that my adoptive family would do the same for me, and um, it's it's very painful. They did disown me when I eventually came out and it's a it's a pain that never leaves me I mean imagine that not just one family rejecting me but but two um I was homeless at that point which was uh it was incredibly difficult um but it's funny because when I think about the things that happened later in my life um you know when you've been starving to death living in your car not a lot scares you at that point. <laughs> That's so uh, it 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 made me stronger, but it also damaged me in a lot of different ways. In what ways did it make you stronger, though? Well, I think um, you know it's I'm trying to give you a positive spin here. <laughs> I mean, how can I put this? I I think everyone we meet is on a hard journey. Like we've just met, and I I'm sure there's real pain in your life as well. Uh, but we we have some similarities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I would say it, it, there's a I think for many LGBT people there's a steal hmm. because when you have to be yourself despite a world that hates you and fears you, hmm. um, that takes a certain amount of courage. And um, one of the things I think really helped me is, you know, I'm not a person of color. Mm. Uh, I'm white. But, you know, so many of the things I see happening, uh, you know, like uh, I remember when Ferguson happened, I remember being at the queer bar in Mississippi, seeing seven Mississippi white cops outside just looking for a reason to arrest anyone and throw you in jail. You know, I got to tell you, Mississippi jail is the worst jail. <laughs> so, so my father told me once. Right. It's, it's, it's true. So I think it gives you a kind of, at its best, it will give you empathy mm. for others and, and a real conviction standing up for people. That's fair. Yeah. I, I guess hearing that, it 
it makes me kind of pivot to that I, I must assume there are a lot of very kind of close friends in that era of your life who are kind of a, a allowing you, I don't know, helping you survive, allowing you to kind of like flourish in your new identity yeah. where you're transitioning kind of like through these college years and then through the coming out process and eventually yeah. away from your family. Yeah. Who are those friends and kind of how do they come into your life? I think I'd be honest and say it was really hard for me to make friends in that era. Uh, I lived a lot of my life online, connecting with people there. There were certainly jobs I had and friends along the way, but until I was able to really come out, it was keeping everyone kind of at uh, arm's distance, if that makes sense to you. Uh, it, it does. I think one of, the, one of the things I think is really hard for straight people to fully comprehend is like this idea of like, oh, well, if you're not out, like it's not like you're not, you know, I, I still come out to the bar, right? Like right. we go dancing, I see movies, I play sports. Like right. I'm still a full person in the eyes of the straight world. Right. I just like, and th this part of me is not out. Right? Yeah, there's and like a part of you that's novocaine. Right. It's dead and you but, have But to, everybody yeah. can sense that. And yeah, I, I think that's can. the part they don't like ever acknowledge is like, you can tell that I'm hiding something all yeah, of the time. Just like right. I, I would, if, like if I had a ton of debt or if I had right. like parents who disowned me, like, like right. there's some burden that I'm, I'm clearly carrying and haven't processed out loud. Exactly. And it's like, how can you not see that? Or how can you see that somebody going through that and just be like, well, yeah, but it's, it, it's best for you if you just don't talk about that. <laughs> That's dead <laughs> on. It's, it's a very eloquent way to put it. And, uh, you know, it's why I've really tried to find people in those situations mm -hmm. and have tried to give them a space to come out, to be themselves, to be a supportive employer. And... I just think, you know, those of us who have been through it, I think we have a real obligation to be there for the next generation in any way that we can. You alluded to before kind of uh, the unique struggles of being a person of color. It's, yeah. I think this is true of all minorities, whether you're a person of color, a religious minority, a, a sexual orientation, gender minority. Everybody has this sense of like, well, uh, regardless what happens, I hope whoever the next generation is doesn't have to go through it as hard as I do. Exactly. And th I'm sure there's a tipping point because we see it in like white male <laughs> culture, right? Where it's yeah. like, well, like nobody deserves to do any better than I did. And like, that's why we won't refund student loan debt and all the other things. Yeah. Uh, but I really, in minority culture, I feel like that's there's a very strong sense of responsibility to the next generation. Yeah, I I, I guess, I can we get really real uh, here? That, something, that is the intention of this show. Something <laughs> I am, I've spent so much time thinking about this is it feels like there is as it is I've seen so much more acceptance of LGBT culture throughout my lifetime I mean compared to Mississippi in the 80s we're light years ahead and I find myself really befuddled by the Dave Rubens and the Milo Yiannopoulos of the world you know white gay men <laughs> that seem to not feel any responsibility towards or Blair White you know no responsibility to the next generation and they kind of have a certain, a cert, I, it, it's privilege or they're just calloused. Like, I feel like for LGBT people, we have a choice. It either fundamentally breaks some part of you along the way and you become a very, uh, a person that can harm others, which Milo Yiannopoulos, I think he would be a clear example, or it gives you this really huge sense of empathy. Mm. And I find myself, as we're winning these battles, I'm just... I'm dismayed by how many people seem to have learned the lesson of anger and privilege, if that makes sense.
Like this struggle of going through, like you said, going through this, you know, identification coming out process and like how you grow into that will either leave you with this anger and this rage that like channeled the wrong way manifests itself as like this fatherly figure who wants to look out for the next generation or this like predatory hunter that like I'm here for myself. I'm going to make as much money as I can. I'm going to conquer as much land as I can, as as many fields as I can. And like there are good manifestations of that. Don't get me wrong. I think some of those people are, you know, our best CEOs, right? Like those yeah. people are great entrepreneurs, yeah. the people who are willing to go off on that way. Uh, but I it, think I took some of those positive lessons. Right. No one's going to... One of the biggest lessons I've learned throughout my life is people are not going to empower you for you. Yeah. At a certain <laughs> point, like I, at a certain point, you have a choice. Hmm. And this is like, this is like advanced gay theory here. <laughs> but at a certain point, I was so consumed with anger and hurt earlier in life and at a certain point you you realize that you have to empower yourself and that's not to say you shunt it off on we we just fight or we're all alone in the world that's not my message but at a certain point the bravest thing you can do is look inside yourself and look at that damage and look at what's holding you back in life and try to address that and try to move on and find that steel inside of yourself to push yourself. That is what's brave. Mm. And I think it's it's why sometimes, especially in the Twitter universe, you <laughs> know, you see you see people that are in pain. Mm. We see this so much with young LGBT people. And I get it. I was you 20 years ago. And my message to you is the pain is not going to consume you forever. Mm. If you're really brave and you'll examine that and you're willing to move beyond it, you are going to find this is, as Tim Cook said, it's the best gift God ever gave you. I really believe that. I want to back up a little bit to something sure. you said earlier about how a lot of your, your friendships and your network and your ability to cope came from the internet. Because yeah. I also find, like you said, the internet to be someplace that a lot of people are just like dumping their misplaced <laughs> anger and hate and feelings. And well, whatever it was a bit different baggages. in the 90s, that, I have to say. So, so, and and that, yeah. is, that is what's interesting to me. It's like, so I'm, I'm about a decade younger than you and like mm-hmm. I, I was on that same internet but yeah. at a very different place in my life, right? <laughs> and so like as I, as I came to that same place in my life, the internet went from being like this scary shady thing to this thing everybody was on but nobody trusted to this thing that was like absolutely ubiquitous in your life to now something that like dominates our lives. Did you have a MySpace page? That's oh, all I mean. Okay. I, I, MySpace okay. had an example. I know I what generation you are. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, great. I was, uh, this is my, my number one hipster point. So, you know, <laughs> you know the, nothing that makes you more of a hipster than being like early on something. Yeah. I was one of the first million people on MySpace. I tell that to people who are younger than me and they go, what's MySpace? And I tell that people who are older than me and they're like, you can't be that old and I was yeah. like look at the grays buddy look at the grays yeah. <laughs> I feel like Tila Tequila kind of let us down from the MySpace yeah era. that like, was kind of the turning she point she took a dark turn you want to talk about a bad look for the yeah. LGBTQ yeah. community yeah wow <laughs> just in case the listeners don't know Tila Tequila was she was she was one of the first like it would be an Instagram influencer yeah. today like she's a gorgeous young woman and then, like, she took a turn to Nazism and white Like, actual supremacy. Nazism. <laughs> like, saluting in, like, H.H. Way. tattoos and the whole, like... You're like, Tila, what's going on, girl? <laughs> so, I, I guess, what is what is coping on the internet like in that era? Like, in that late 90s, early 2000s? Because you're, you're a fully formed adult at that point. Right. You're, well, kind of. Look, you're a, a college-aged look, adult. honestly, if for me, it's more... Yeah, game culture, for me, because I grew up in Mississippi... Mm. 
you gotta understand, my parents got me the NES in 1985, <laughs> okay. and I was gone after that. Like completely addicted, NES, SNES, PlayStation 1, just gone, just history. Lock me in a room, call right, me for dinner, right. and that's it. So a lot of it, just to be straight with you, it mm. was more uh, technology, technology startup scene, programming scene, mm. game scene, all the kind of things. So it was really more professionally focused. And that makes how, sense. how young did you get into that? So obviously oh, you were gosh. drawn to it as a kid. Oh, yeah, as soon as I could. Like oh. I was on the internet with Hayes commands with a 2400 baud modem back in the early <laughs> Wow, 90s, okay. So. We're, we're right out the yeah, garages of yeah. uh, <laughs> Is, this is really this is one of the really weird things about my background because mm. I was born in the poorest state. I mean, I was eventually adopted into the poorest state in America, mm. surrounded by abject poverty, going to relatives' houses over Christmas, and it's a trailer in the middle of nowhere shooting cans with a twenty-two rifle just to have something to do. That sounds like kind of a good time. Yeah, well, <laughs> but at the same time, then I have a father yeah. who grew up in abject poverty, joined the Navy to get his medical degree, founded a clinic in the 80s just as healthcare costs were exploding and profited wildly from mm. that. So I grew up in a family of millionaires in a completely broken, poverty-stricken uh, culture. And it was this really bifurcated place. And what I what I really love about my parents, like I can see this now, like there was evil in them, hmm. but there was good too. They enthusiastically funded anything I ever wanted to learn, hmm. ever. Um, the very first 3D APIs and computers, they were just like, you want to learn that? Here's the software for it. You want a PlayStation 1 dev kit? Sure, we'll buy that for you. Go learn. So it. you just have like everything you could ever dream of, as, was, far, as far as like tinkering and figuring it was, out. It was like more what complicated than that. It was more like I would talk to them about something I wanted to learn, mm. and if they thought I was serious, they would help me help give me the resources to learn it. Fantastic example. I'm 13 years old. I'm in Mississippi. You think my Mississippi public school? has a freaking computer science problem. Probably doesn't program. have a computer. It, it actually, it barely did. <laughs> uh, so they pulled some strings and got me into classes at the University of Southern Mississippi, taking sure. classes at a really unbelievably young age. Mm. Um, and that's what they did. They always gave me the ability to, to learn things. And it's a, a tendency, like if you look through my career, mm. this is a pattern you're going to see over and over again. Uh, I did had no experience doing uh, animation. Did my own animation startup. Had never run a game studio. Founded my own game studio. Had never run for office before. Ran for Congress. Figured it out as I was going. So there's a there's a wonderful empowerment from there. And something I see, especially with a lot of women candidates, is there's. I think one of the ways a lot of women deal with structural sexism is there's a a sense if you get to be educated enough or prepared enough or get just the right things on your resume, then they will accept you, and then you'll be qualified, and then you'll be able to walk through that door. Yeah. For me, I'm like, look, the Boston's Boys Club is never going to give me a shot, no matter what. I could go to Harvard tomorrow and get a public policy graduate degree, and I'm still going to be fighting these forces. <laughs> so rather than that, let's just get in there Let's be prepared to make mistakes, to not to learn from those mistakes, 
and move forward. You can get a hell of a lot done with your career if you're willing to fail and learn from it. I, uh, I, on the way over here, actually, I was listening to a podcast, uh, Chris Hayes' podcast, Why Is This Happening, with Congressman out of uh, Orange County in California. Oh. And one of the things she was talking about was similarly she had never run for Congress before. Uh, she got elected, obviously, she's part of this freshman class. And there was like this turning point where she, you know, she has all this experience. She she uh, actually was taught by Elizabeth Warren and like worked with Elizabeth Warren for years, worked under Kamala Harris. Right. And she's seeing all, you know, the fucking country going up in flames. <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? Yeah. And her boyfriend turns to her and she's like, why don't you fucking run for office? Yeah. And it like, it took, and this is why I like Chris Hayes, but the way he explains it is perfect. It's like, it took the idea of male hubris to empower <laughs> her to run for Congress. Because like it. you said, like women, w- nobody tells women that, right? Like right. men have this dumb theory, like, oh, fuck it. Like, well, they're doing a bad job. I could probably do that, right? right like every right. one of us thinks we can beat, you know, we can score one point on LeBron James one-on-one. We can score one point on Serena Williams on a tennis court. Like, we're fucking nuts. Yeah. Yeah, but that is the hubris of being male. And yeah. I think part of what comes with that, uh, the, the only, I, I guess, substitution for that is the hubris of finance, right? The, yeah. the hubris of, of financial security. Mm-hmm. And so I talk about this a lot where it's like, I have all the hubris that comes with masculinity. I have none of the hubris that comes with like security. Right. Uh, and right. even just from finding a partner who is in a, a financially decent state, like mm-hmm. the, the balance that comes with that, that's empowered me to go out and try so many other things. But right. before that, it's like, you can't, like you said, you can't go try something new if you might be homeless and living out of your car. Yeah. Like you can't go try something new if like you might not be able to eat if you fail at that. Absolutely. But like if I know if I fail at that, I can move back to like, you know, my eight bedroom house with my mom and my dad and like stay in the pool house for like a year yeah. while I like, get back on my feet. I, I can be a lot riskier. I can start a new company. I can teach myself animation. I can right. go out on a lot more lists. And that is privilege. Yeah, the right. phrase is check your privilege. Exactly. It's not if you have privilege or an evil person. It's check your privilege. Exactly. I will tell you right now, like uh, it's, it's such a bifurcated, weird experience growing up because I was subjected to untold horror. Mm. At the same time, I did have that financial privilege. Mm. And as I've moved through my career, I have had that. I've had the freedom to fail. And I think it's so important. Like, this is kind of the myth of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, right, in this country. And we see this through the venture capital community and who gets funded and (laughs) who doesn't. (laughs) Yes. It's it's absolutely true. So, you know, I, I can't sit here and tell you that I have not had opportunities that other people have, have, have been shut out from because I have. Mm. But I think it's what you do with it. Um, I think if you look at my messages running for Congress, it's not about Brianna Wing. Mm. It's not about what's good for me or how awesome I am. I genuinely see the country on fire. <laughs> and I don't know what to do other than stand up and do what I can to fix it is exactly the same as Gamergate. Mm. Gamergate came at a deep, deep cost for me, mm. one that hurts me to this day. Um, it's like I, I just feel so responsible for making it better, whether it's women in tech mm. or the way I saw structural racism in Mississippi growing up and now how that playbook has infected the rest of America. Mm. I don't know what to do with that privilege other than stand up for others. 
I, I mean, that's really, I, I guess that's the ask of a lot of people right now. I do want to get back to Gamergate at yeah. some point, but I, I want to loop back there because there's a couple other things uh, I, I, I guess I want to hit on. First of which is, of course. when when do you end up in Massachusetts? Because <laughs> uh, there's a long gap here between like, okay, there's, there's college dude, but we're then homeless living on the car, we're separated yep. from the family. And there was and working in GameStop at California that's doing what I mean. freelance illustration. So my husband, uh, we met while I was still in in Colorado. Okay. Uh, and do you remember as the economy was falling to pieces just as Obama was elected? Yes, yes, I do. So <laughs> it was horrible. People it it is why my driving ideology is nihilism. <laughs> <laughs> fair point, fair point. So my husband was laid off from Morrison and Forrester, which okay. was the law firm he had worked at a decade uh, in Palo Alto. Uh, and he got a job at Novartis here in Massachusetts. Okay. So we moved here. And I have to tell you, this is. I hope it doesn't sound maudlin, but for me, I'm young enough to remember when my dad was in the Navy and we were moving every few months. Mm. And then I, so I never felt home as a young child. I certainly never felt like Mississippi was my home, though there are parts of it I I have grown to love in mm. the time since. Um, you know, as an adult, I've lived in Florida, I have lived in yeah. Washington, D.C., I have lived in Colorado, I've lived in Silicon Valley. It was not until I moved to Massachusetts that I said, this is it. No. I finally, finally found home. And I'm, you know, sometimes when you're campaigning, mm. you you run into people that, that speak with a lot of pride, like I've lived here my whole life, and I'm I'm thrilled for you. But for me, I've been searching for this home my whole life, and it took me a while to find it. Well, I speak at great length about my love of Massachusetts, and one of the things is, like, I am from here, and yeah. I, you know, obviously everybody wants to leave home, right? You want yeah. to move other places. And I've lived here 29 years. I, oh, I very wow. much look forward to living somewhere else at some point in my life. Yeah. But I look around the country, and it's like, where the fuck else would I want to live? <laughs> it's like we're, and it's like Boston is, or Massachusetts in general, is not the number one state perhaps in anything, yeah. but it is like top seven in literally anything you yeah. care about. Yeah. And so it's like, it's safer, the roads are better, all the top schools are here, both like at the local level and at the collegiate level and everywhere in between. The better okay. private schools are here, the better charter schools are here, the better hospitals are here, the model for the ADA is here, or the ACA is here. You know what I mean? Like, we, we're not doing everything perfectly, <laughs> but like, you will survive here and be able to go do something else yeah so long as you can afford a house here which yeah. is the other problem oh, yeah. <laughs> i'm 42 we just bought this house and you're living in now it took until now to afford it no i think you're dead on and it's not to say we don't have work to do here mm. um no, look qualification i'm not a person of color i mm. don't experience racism firsthand but the racism i do see in massachusetts it is it is so weird compared to <laughs> what I saw in Mississippi growing up. This is really interesting to get a white perspective on, actually. Because, so, like I said, I haven't lived okay. other places, so, so like, comparatively. So this is, this is my perspective on Because one of the biggest problems I think Massachusetts does have is structural racism here. What I find amazing is, yeah, you don't have the Ku Klux Klan showing up at uh, you know, UMass Amherst <laughs> like they do Old Miss. But at least at Old Miss... You talk to a black person at least once a day. This is the most segregated place I've ever lived in my life by far. Really? More segregated than Silicon Valley even, or like the, yeah. the Valley in general? Yeah, at least in Silicon Valley. It's, you know, Indian people That's and Asian fair. people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are more Asian people here. But especially with, you know, black people, it is 
it is a bizarre dynamic here. Um, it, it frankly makes me very uncomfortable. There was so. a there was a I don't know it was like a Twitter question meme type thing going around for a long time. But uh, the question being like, at what grade did you have your first black teacher? Right. And it's like I saw all of my friends from the south, you know, first grade, third yeah, grade, second grade, course. kindergarten. I'm like, I'm I can't recall ever having a black teacher, and I went to. Uh, you know, elementary school, middle school, four high schools, two universities, and none. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm see, and this is why it 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 makes me very frustrated when people stereotype the South as being white conservative Southerners. Mm. It's not. It's the blackest place in America. It's the blackest place in America by far. And I want to tell you, at, at one point, you know, of course, my racist parents sent me to, uh, you know, private private Mississippi schools, and it was very segregated. But at a certain point, um, I was so uncomfortable being around that that I talked my parents into sending me to public school. And this is one of the things that saved me. Mm. Because all of a sudden, I'm around people that think differently than I do, that have different backgrounds. I will never forget this. Right across from my homeroom was the special aid class for our entire town in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Hmm. I'd never met someone on the autism spectrum. I'd never talked to someone with cerebral palsy before. And it was starting to be around people like that. That kind of, it was like, wake up, Brianna. Like some, some people have experienced the world a little differently than what, we do. What made you want to make that switch? Because like that's, I mean, it, it, it sounds lovely to live in this nice little bubble where everyone looks like me and talks like me and walks like me and the food's great and the, there's computers everywhere. And like, that sounds fucking awesome. Why the hell do I want to go to public school and have I had a huge crush on a girl and I wanted to know her better. <laughs> and God, that's the reason. And you know. That sounds was, like a teenage reason. It was, it was, it was great though. I I mean, it finally, I, I started making friends. It was amazing. So. All right. And yeah. so we, you ended up going to Old Miss, you said, right? I did. So what did and you study at Old Miss? I studied engineering okay. initially. Uh, you know, I dropped out when my first startup got hyper busy. Uh, it's very hard to attend college and do a startup at the first time. What's but eventually, the startup scene in Mississippi in it's, the 80s? Well, like? unless you've got, well, this was the 90s. 90s this sorry. was 1997. So, uh, I mean, frankly, it was it was not great, but, you know, like it was still a learning experience. Yeah. I'm no, running a sure. team. I'm hiring people. We're, we're making stuff. Uh, what, were, what were you guys making? Uh, animation. We oh, did. Cool. Uh, we competed on television pilots, trying oh, to get sure. on UPN at the time. It was awesome. my very first startup. It was a great thing. But I mean, the, the point is, uh, I started at Ole Miss. I went away for a while. I moved to politics, eventually came back. And, you know, I studied uh, journalism at that point. This was the Bush administration. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I realized that America was not going to be able to survive because I saw our media structurally unable to res to respond to Bush mm. and his dishonesty. Let alone where that got us. Yeah. I mean, you want to get real? <laughs> I mean, look at, we never had an honest conversation about the Iraq war. We never asked the American people to reflect on that choice, and now we've got Trump. Um, uh, we're in a hell of a mess, to be honest with you. So, yeah, I've, I've had a few experiences. <laughs> Uh, and then so from there, you end up out in Palo Alto for a bit. You're out yep. in Colorado for a bit. And yep. then you wind up in Massachusetts. What year? Oh, uh, gosh, it was 2009. 2009. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then that Gamergate happens very <laughs> shortly thereafter. <laughs> Not too short. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I launched my first game studio here in Massachusetts. So 
Uh, this is back from the iPhone 3 came out, and <laughs> Unreal... Um, <laughs> what a time. <laughs> oh, it was great. Apple's 3D APIs are basically garbage. Their phones can't run 3D applications at all. So Epic decides to port their um, engine over. And in case your listeners don't know, uh, Unreal Engine is the uh, game technology behind Mass Effect, behind Gears of War, behind Arkham Asylum. It's this uh, really amazing game engine that's been around uh, since 1998, if I remember correctly. Um, So... Epic ports Unreal over to the iPhone uh, with this thing called Epic Citadel. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm looking at the next 20 years of computing. This Mm. is absolutely amazing. And I knew Unreal, like, deprecated versions of it, but I'd certainly messed with it. And I decided to found my own game studio right here in Massachusetts. Uh, The number of women I saw were exploding who were playing uh, iPhone games. Maybe because it was kind of a reset to gamer culture and it was less toxic, mm. and I decided to and less investment. It's it's right yeah. there. It's easy. It's like maybe uh, most iPhone games is like you know two or three buttons versus like having complex controls. Yeah, though I'd say Unreal Engine is oh, extremely yeah, yeah. complicated <laughs> development on iPhone. Uh, I would oh I could talk about that all day, but this is not a, this is not a tech podcast. Uh, the bottom line is I saw women were going to be a big part of the game market, and I was right. Mm. And I gave a bunch of women jobs, and we shipped uh, my first game, Revolution 60, which I'm amazingly proud of. It Mm. is a fantastic game. And there's a reason the very first thing I ever shipped, we won several Game of the Year awards. And what what is Revolution 60? As somebody uh, outside the gamer culture. Yeah, are you a gamer at all? Uh, I would say I was a modest gamer for like my college and post-college life. I no longer own a console or play very many games. So for Revolution 60, we told people on the pause screen, we say, look, if you don't side with either Minuet or Amelia, things are going to go bad. (laughs) And what I find amazing is our game type, you go through, you make your choices, you're professional or rogue, and people could not decide. They split it straight down the middle. Over 50% of our players did. And they end up with this score that was in between professional and rogue, in between Minuet and Amelia, and because of that, 50% of our players failed their mission and got this brutal ending of watching everyone they cared about in four and a half hours die so do you and face the consequences of their choices. And it was... That, sound, that sounds like a, a vital argument against centrism. It, it, it is. And I got to tell you, it's a, it's a powerful game. You should absolutely play it. I'm, I'm an avowed centrist. Yeah, Maybe yeah. I should. Are uh, you a centrist? I, yeah. I consider myself a centrist, yeah. I consider myself a pragmatist, but I think that's a very different thing. Like, uh, that's a difference between... There's a big difference between trying to see people's point of view hmm. and pretending there are two sides to something like Donald Trump. Oh, I, agree. I would agree. I yeah. guess uh, my my view on centricism is very much colored by the idea of like I I think the center has moved very far to the right in what oh, we yeah. acknowledge as the center. Yeah. And so in my you know in my estimation, something like the Iraq War would not happen if we had a true center. Yeah. More people should come back to the center. I think yeah. part of the problem is people are having to pick a side. Yeah. And frankly, the side that's more alluring is always going to be the one that's more dramatic, more violent, more divisive. Like things I can latch onto easily and don't have to think about. And yeah. that side is always going to be the most regressive conservative side. Yeah. Uh, and so long and as that's that... And that's a completely fair point. And so I guess, like, my, my view on it, though, is, like, so the only way to combat that is in, in, in 
sadly, it will never be to win over enough people to be progressive because yeah. that, like not enough people are going to want to understand the complexity of progressive issues right. or care enough to even get into them. Right. But what they will understand is empathy and common sense and reasonability. And that to me is centricism. It's like, I don't, I don't need you to come over here and like, you know, I don't know, like become an officiant for trans weddings in your off time. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I don't need you to do that. All right. I need you to do is like, call people the names they want to be called and like not be an asshole about it yeah can you do that for me like can you call me mitch and you can call right. them yeah. shelby yeah. and like Absolutely. everything will be cool That's <laughs> utter, that is utterly fair and reasonable i think my contention would be something like i think the media has never had an honest conversation with themselves about the the the, the things leading up to trump mm. and i do think that the right wing has become more and more dishonest i think there's disinformation conspiracy theories that are that are are actually breaking our culture mm. and i think it's very hard to stay neutral on this and maybe that that comes that. from the pain of seeing friends die in the iraq war for nothing mm. um, mississippi had more people serve in that war per capita than anyone else and oh. i know i did not know that i know a lot of people that mm. that went there and some that never came home and that's it's personal to me so I'm not saying, I, I think there's a separate conversation between we're all Americans and we've all got to find a way to share this country together mm. um, and, you know, even live with each other and maybe maybe even hate each other, mm. but still live with one <laughs> another. We, we've got to get to that. I, that's a fundamentally different thing than pretending... Uh, than trying to please every single side. Oh, I, for sure. I, 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 yeah. I completely agree with that. I, I, I guess if we, can, if we can't get everybody on a side to make progress and the only side we can get people on is to make harm, then yeah. we're better off getting everybody to the middle. My calculation on that is if we get the majority of the people to the middle, the people who are left to lead will be the people who care, and yeah. the only people who really care are the most vile or the most progressive. And I'm willing to bet the most progressive will win over people who don't care that much. Yeah. You yeah, just got to de-radicalize people. You no. don't have to actually pull them to the other side. I, th I think you're dead on with that. And, I mean, what I think is really challenging, this is what I cannot figure out about running for office. Mm. I think what I found in being a political candidate is it, it really forces you to dig hard within yourself and to take a hard look at yourself, what your faults are, mm. what your flaws are, what qualities about you draw people in and what qualities push others away. Mm. And I have to spend so much of my day, I spent 30 minutes today talking to a right-wing venture capitalist <laughs> on the phone about my campaign. Sounds fun. But it's, it's you're, you're looking to represent this person in Congress mm. and you have to learn to talk to that kind of person with respect. What I fundamentally cannot figure out is how so many people go into politics. And I feel like this is a process that has helped me find the best part of myself. What I don't understand is why for so many politicians it seems to do the opposite. Um, I can't look at someone like Mitch McConnell and not come away with the conclusion that the process has broken him, mm. has broken some fundamental part of him that understands reality and is willing to stand up for morality. Maybe he never had it, but I don't think I could operate if I wasn't really trying to find the best in people, if that makes sense. What would you argue to people who say the opposite of that, that maybe he... Maybe he's just finally found reality and how dark shit really is. 
I I'm, I'm not going to agree on that. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I guess yeah. that's that's giving up hope, right? Yeah. Is but like people are in it for themselves. They are going to do like whatever personally benefits them, and like not a lot of people are going to get up and stand in their way. Do uh, you think so? I mean, I feel like my entire career has been running into the fire. Like uh, there's a there's a yeah, Batman versus Superman was not a good movie, but there's that <laughs> scene at the beginning of it where. Um, you know, the Batman character is running into danger while everyone else is running away. And I really see myself in that. With Gamergate, I got to tell you, I could sit here and list 100 women that had conversations with me and said, you know what? They went after me. I sat down. I shut up. I didn't want to get involved. I looked out for myself. But I guess that's my point, right? It's yeah. like when when you have when the odds are a hundred running in one direction and one running in the other, and like the place that one is running to has hundreds of thousands of people, yeah. you're gonna get annihilated. You know what I mean? And like that that's how I see this going. Like time and again, it it makes me worried, right? When you look at things like immigration, when you look at things like the you know race relations with the police, it's like. Every time I leave my house, I look over my shoulder. Yeah. I see a cop around the corner. I like I take the next side street and pull over and act like I'm looking up directions. Yeah. Like I, you know, what I mean. And how do we get to that place if not people running in the opposite direction and the you know <laughs> those people going nowhere essentially? And that's what I fear. It's like yeah. what the reality really is is that the worst people run things and the best people run away from things. Well, I hope you don't leave here today going Brianna Wu's <laughs> the worst person <laughs> that can possibly. Well, you don't run, run things, things yet, though. I, but, I hope you. Will, I hope that will I'm change. Working, I mean. I tend to pick fights that are hard to win. Mm. And I don't win every time. That's fair. But I have to tell you, like Gamergate a few years later, um, as we're sitting here recording it today, uh, I spent this morning working with the Times Mm. for a piece on the five-year anniversary. The truth is when the history of women in technology is written, I'm going to be on that history book for my work and the stance that I took. It's really just the way I'm built. It's about I couldn't live with myself if I didn't. Um, this is a story I, I, I tell sometimes. It's absolutely true. This is one of the things that really defined me. Um, I'm a child of Mississippi. I can't remember how old I am, but uh, I think I was like eight or nine. And we're having the big Christmas dinner where everybody comes by. All our relatives, one's from trailers, one's from D-Lo, one's from... <laughs> Uh, from, uh, you know, Yazoo, all over the state come down for dinner. And I'm sitting there in my parents' dining room, and one of our relatives starts making a bunch of anti-Semitic cracks mm. about the Jewish family that just moved in on our street. Now, I am so young, I barely know what's, what someone Jewish is. Right. <laughs> but All you know is there might be another religion other than the one we go yeah, to. Yeah, and, and I was trying to figure that out. But I'll tell you this, even as an eight-year-old, mm. I could sense a darkness in that room. Mm. And I could sense the same kind of evil that I sensed when people I knew were talking about black people in Mississippi and the, the violent undertone there. Mm. And I, I would never forget this. I'm sitting there and I'm staring at the adults in the room as a child. And I'm going, I know you're a good person. Why won't you say anything? Why won't you stand up? Why won't you speak out? And I used to think that it was something broken in Mississippians, and it's not. It's something broken in human nature. Mm -hmm. And just for whatever reason, I have to do what I can 
in a moment like that. And maybe it makes me, uh, maybe it makes me ridiculous. Maybe it's asking for trouble, but it's just who I am. And so Gamergate seems to be the, the instigating moment of that. The, the real, like, all right, fuck it. Like, I really need to get involved here. Uh, Do you think? I mean... Uh, I, well, no, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm asking. Is that Looking I at the trajectory, that, that seems to be at least what triggers, like, I'm, I'm, I'm going from, like, I, all right, I'll stand up if I, if I see somewhere else. This is now going to be my focus. Like, I'm, I'm taking this head on. Yeah. This is eventually going to be part of my platform, my narrative when I run for office. Like, yeah. this, that seems like the turning point. It was, it was the moment that trait uh, got captured in a national, well, international <laughs> way. A woman in Danger is a storyline that the media likes. <laughs> that is very true. Um, and... You know, at the time, I was really idealistic about it. And looking back, I realized, like, oh, they just enjoyed the storyline of a woman in danger more than they really cared about women in the tech industry. Um, for me, it was certainly the... And, and so your listeners know, Gamergate was a harassment campaign against women in the game industry. It uh, there's a really bad Law and Order episode about it. If you want, I watch saw a part of that. I was it's, I could not believe what I was it's watching. So funny. Are you aware Logan Paul played Gamergate in that episode? <laughs> no, I didn't. I never Paul. made the connection. Ice Everybody's T. on fucking SVU. Everybody, Ice T guns down Logan Paul <laughs> on the rooftop to save the character based on me. So, <laughs> I mean that. I'm not allowed to endorse that kind of view on the internet. No, I'm not endorsing that. That sounds I'm like a saying, great episode. I'm uh, saying <laughs> it was, it's funny because it was before Logan Paul was a popular YouTuber. I just I think just, it's funny the idea of Ice-T shooting Logan Paul yeah, over you. on a rooftop, yeah. <laughs> and to be fair, it was also, this character was a composite, and oh, me and yes, Zoe yeah. and Anita Sarkeesian. Uh, but... Still, it was it was a moment that got public consciousness, and it it certainly uh, kind of solidified me in the public mind as a fighter. Um, and it, but the real takeaway from Gamergate, and this is why I hope you get and your listeners get, I really believed that in standing up to them, law enforcement would prosecute the people sending me those death threats because I had their name, I had their employer, I had their wife's name, <laughs> I had everything I could on them. Um, and I really thought this was going to be the moment our industry changed, and it wasn't. Hmm. And a conclusion I came to is that uh, the people in charge were not going to fix this, so we needed to get the power to fix it ourselves. So I, I guess take me back a couple of steps, because so, like you mentioned, a lot of my listeners probably don't know about Gamergate. I, weirdly enough, Gamergate is actually part of how I ended up like on Twitter. Really? Uh, so I got a Twitter account, and like, one of the first things I ever stumbled across on Twitter was uh, the opposite side of Gamergate, <laughs> like the troll side of Gamergate. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and what it was weird to me was like, you know, I just go on Twitter and search like local hashtags, <laughs> and it's trending in Massachusetts and Boston because of your involvement, right? Yeah, and yeah. so all I see that is, is thousands of tweets about, like, fuck Brianna woo and fuck this woman and like what a crazy SJW and mind you this is 
what were we talking about days? What is that? 2011, 2012? 2014. 2014. Okay, so this is a couple years in. Uh, and it's like, I had just gotten, um, a friend of mine in Philadelphia ran this project for card-carrying SJWs. It's like a punch card for all the, you know, go to a protest, go to an organizing meetup, donate to a campaign, like all these like SJW activities. And they it was like a company they did that rewarded you for them. And so like, I'm like, why do people hate SJWs now? I thought this was a good thing. Like my, me and my naive 24-year-old self. Uh, and so I become like friends and followers with all of these like eight chance roles. Oh so like, oh I, I, you know, and I have like 300 followers on Twitter, maybe if that at the point. Uh, and so it's like nobody on my Twitter except for like a couple sports people and like eight chance trolls who just hate you and hate Anna Sarkeesian. And like, I'm trying to figure all this out, but I have no context for this. Cause again, this is past my, my gamer involvement, right? Like I play some FIFA occasionally with my buddies, but that, and like, that's it. And so I'm like, what is going on? And all I can find really like eight chance trolls, like hating you. And then the media saying that you're, you know, women are in danger, but we don't really know why. So yeah. something to do with women in tech, something to do with video games, but like what what actually happened there and like when do you get involved? So um, so to back up, a lot of people think Gamergate started when they targeted Zoe Quinn. This is okay. not true. This okay. is a fallacy. Gamergate started earlier in 2014 where trolls where uh, Samantha Allen, a game journalist, spoke up about uh, she was frustrated because Giant Bomb uh, is a gaming website and owned by CBS and Lo and behold, here's this extremely popular website. And out of every gamer in the entire world, every game journalist, everyone, just a, a complete coincidence. Yet again, they've got to make a new hire. And glory be, it's another white dude, <laughs> another white cis dude. Oh, my God. I just can't believe that every single personality they've ever hired just happens to be a white dude. And, uh, you know, Samantha Allen critiqued them mm. uh, for this in a really mild way on Twitter. And it was the birth of the Gamergate playbook. They started targeting her in extreme ways. Um, what was her criticism of them? Just you like need a, to hire some people of color. Okay. I, and I, maybe I, I just want to paint this, obviously. Yeah. We interview a lot of different types of people. So sure. I, my, my listenership is very skewed. I want to sure. like make this clear. Hire a woman at <laughs> some point. Just statistically, <laughs> yeah. it's improbable. Maybe a person of color who isn't like a small, like an Asian 26-year-old. And they eventually did hire a person of color, okay. Austin Walker, who's, the, uh, who's in charge of Waypoint. I like to think that maybe the pressure people put on Giant Bomb and CBS to finally do... This much diversity <laughs> helped him get that opportunity, but that's a whole nother discussion. I wouldn't say that. Well, because <laughs> that's going to get turned around on you. <laughs> okay. Well, but there was a, certainly a, a pressure yeah. that we have been putting on Giant Bomb to finally hire women. Mm -hmm. And today they have finally started to hire women and people of color, which is good because CBS is, uh, has to follow the EEOC, actually. Yeah. So um, the, the point is, I had spent. A lot of 2014, we just shipped my first game, and I was trying to talk to people about finally, uh, I was talking to industry people about what was happening to Samantha Allen. Um, I have a piece in Polygon that was their third most read piece that year called No Skin Thick Enough that year. Mm -hmm. And it happened in the aftermath of Samantha Allen being harassed out of the industry. 
um, because they ran the Gamergate playbook on her until she just left. I was speaking up because I could not get industry men to do anything about these trolls on 8chan that were harassing women until we left. They did it to Lee Alexander. They did it to Mandy Bryce. They targeted uh, Catherine Cross. They targeted all these industry women. And I had conversations with Greg Miller, who's a huge guy today. It's kind, kind of funny. I could show you the email of me begging him to do something. I can show you talking to Michael Footer. I can talk, show you emails me talking to IGN's editors, begging them to act because women were just leaving in droves. Mm. And then eventually they targeted Zoe Quinn and the media caught on from there. Uh, so basically they came up with this formula. When a woman started speaking up going, hey, can you do a little bit more to support women in this industry and give us this much of a chance. Mm. Uh, they would target that woman. They would threaten to kill her, threaten to rape her, mm. uh, threaten to murder her until she'd just leave. And uh, eventually they went after me too. When I, I guess when you said, is that the whole playbook? Is just like death yeah. threats and rape threats? That, yeah. that seems... It's I guess that seems easy enough to combat. That seems pretty illegal. No, it's even worse than that, though. So they but, will. But go I'm saying there wasn't like it wasn't like there was a transition from like legitimate ki criticism of like their criticism to like something in an escalation. It just goes from like, okay, like, hey, could you hire a woman? Fuck you, I want to kill you. That, that is the conversation that happened. I, I mean, I mean, I believe that. I've I've seen that happen seen in, in plenty of industries. So, so like, I just want to make sure I'm getting that right. No, absolutely. And the thing is, the thing is, eventually they target me for speaking up because I, I could not get men in the industry to say anything or do anything. Um, and when they targeted me, I, I knew that the games press was never going to cover Gamergate. Mm. So when the Boston Globe called me, even though I'd been run out of my home with death threats, I picked up that phone. When the New York Times called me, I picked up that phone. When media all around the world started calling me, I picked up the phone. And I forget the exact number, but it was hundreds of interviews I did there. And what I did before then is I... I wrote it down on a sheet of paper what I wanted people to know. Mm. Women in the game industry are being run out. Gamergate is a hate movement. Mm. Uh, we need help. We need law enforcement to act. And I did hundreds upon hundreds of interviews just saying those facts. And we did turn the perception of Gamergate around eventually. I think today most people know it is in fact not about ethics in game journalism. Mm. It's about harassing women. So I'm very and so, proud uh, of that. Just so I'm clear, was Please. that was that kind of how they tried to legitimize it? Because I did hear their argument was like ethical game journaling, and these women are going too far in their criticism of like female characters, and right. they're trying to uh, as, going as, as too as far. I, yeah, uh, these are real things I hear. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying these are views I hold, just to be right. clear for my audience, but like things along those lines where it's like where they're trying to over you know take bring the gay agenda to the game community, like all this kind of thing. I right? wish uh, games are. <laughs> I wish we could bring the gay, gay agenda to the game industry that would be great i i find it so strange because so many queer people i know are gamers I, How, I got, so I, many queer people are game developers How I, about well, that? right that's what i'm saying it's yeah. but like the, the majority of the gamer community i know are queer people and so it's I like mean, it's, it's queer people in the fucking entire industry, bros. yeah <laughs> but, uh, yeah just, yeah they, you would think there would be some adoption there do you point. realize mass effect 3 we got through mass effect 3 before uh you could talk bioware and having a gay male subplot in Mass Effect. Now, I don't even talk Bioware, like one of the most liberal companies you could possibly imagine, <laughs> into finally presenting this. Our industry is weird, man. 
It is super it's, weird. It's this weird reflection of both like re- fantasy and like everything is possible, but everything therefore is like very regressive because like given ultimate possibility, everybody's minds regress back to like the simplest choices. Absolutely. And it really reflects like the best and worst of us. Yeah, well, I think it, I think more to the point, it reflects the uh, corruptive influence the money men have yeah. in our field. That's fair. Um, I think like if you look at, uh, say, Activision and mm-hmm. in app purchases and DLC and microtransactions, uh, that's not game developers leading that charge. <laughs> well, it's yeah. the money men. So. Well, yeah, because they're just getting crunched for 18 months in a row and then getting burnt out and wanting to go jump off a cliff. And I'm pretty sure that's not their choice. Yeah, it's an exploitative <laughs> field. But bottom line, um, you know, I couldn't get the men in our field to do anything. Mm. I spoke up and I tried to get law enforcement to act and they failed. And so wh- wh- what did that look like when you say you got try to get law enforcement to act? I know you were. I know the FBI was involved. I assume there was some some local and state choices before then. What is their response so to you? So, gang very go? granular. Catherine Clark here mm. in Massachusetts, Congresswoman Catherine Clark, got involved at a certain point uh, because the I'm FBI very interested to know this because she is my representative. She's amazing. Uh, so the FBI. So I shouldn't primary her, is what you're saying? No. Fact, <laughs> my God, please I'm don't. Joking. She's ten out of ten great. Uh, so the FBI was asserting jurisdiction over Gamergate. So when local or state actors, well, you know, law enforcement would try to get involved, uh, the FBI would come in and say, this is our case because the national profile was so high. At the same time, the FBI is not actively investigating this. So it's going into the big complaint file. Mm-hmm. Eventually, she has a come-to-Jesus meeting with the FBI at their office, and they assign me an agent to start looking at my death threats and Anita Sarkeesian's. Um, and I believe this is the moment I'm going to get justice. This is when it's going to change. I had hired a team to meticulously document the death threats against me and other women. We compiled a massive amount of information uh, because the thing is, A-channers aren't that smart. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's a huge footprint of what their real names are. Now, I'm obviously not going to dox someone publicly. That would be ethically uh, terrible. But I did pass it over to law enforcement. Mm. I spent a year sending this over to law enforcement, believing justice is right around the corner. And a year and <laughs> that's where you fucked up as a white person. Yeah, you still trust yeah, cops. Yeah, no, <laughs> I really believed in the system. Um, and eventually, I got a notice oh, from Brianna. the FBI <laughs> telling me that they've not looked at anything I've ever sent them through email, and asking. And this is like a year in. This I is imagine. a year and a half in, yeah. and uh, they tell me uh, to send them a hard drive with that information on it. And I did, and I got a read receipt. And at that point, that was the uh, the last contact I had about the FBI, about prosecutions. Um, so they never prosecuted, they never even probably, by the side of it, I looked tell, into I it. I could tell you the person's name right here today mm. that saved the threat. Hey, your dead mutilated corpse is going to be on the front page of Jezebel, and there isn't jack shit you can't do about it. Uh, I'm going to cut off your husband's tiny Asian penis and rape you with it until you bleed. The guy that made that threat that they made the Law and Order episode about, I know where I know his name, I know where he lives, I know what he does for a living. Um, and FBI just didn't act. So the conclusion I came to is that we needed people in Congress to change the law to take this more seriously. And mm-hmm. just, just to be clear, it's not just women gamers. Hmm. If you look at Ferguson and the police abuses, abuses there, we've got to have people looking at that those kinds of crimes very, very, very seriously. Hmm. We've got to get justice. 
And I just fundamentally believe, until we had that big change from the top, advocate a certain portion of the FBI's budget to prosecuting online cybercrimes. I just don't think the men in Congress care about this issue. What what other cybercrimes do you kind of like group into? Is that human trafficking stuff? Is that you know trafficking uh, illegal goods online? Like how how broad does that go? Oh my God! Uh, so this is I could talk to you for an hour about mm. this. That there are many ways to serve your country. Mm. And for me, I can't fire a gun. I can't pilot a plane. You're I can't, Mississippi. You might be able to fire a gun. I may be able to fire a gun. <laughs> my point is, I can't serve my country right. with in that way. In that way, but I am very well qualified to change and improve our tech policy mm. in this country. We are under extremely serious cyber attack from Russia. Uh, our infrastructure is under Among attack. Among others. <laughs> yeah, and, and others too, China. Uh, we've lost jobs, uh, 600 jobs in Massachusetts just a few miles from here where uh, a Chinese grad student uh, came here for college, was hired by a semiconductor company, uh, got control of the entire Git for a semiconductor company, uploaded it, sent it over to China. They had the entire company's IP, and that company went out of business. So um, it's, it's serious stuff. Congress doesn't address that. I can fix that. that. I can't fix every problem in this country, but Mm. I sure can pass better cybersecurity policy. I can reinstate the Office of uh, Technology Assessment. I know how to get that done. I know how to give people right to encryption. Uh, I know how to legislate net neutrality. There are some things I am very well qualified to do. Mm. And uh, I, I know it sounds idealistic, but I feel very... I feel responsible to step up and do that if it makes sense. Yeah. I, so the whole idea of this podcast, we talk to a lot of people about a lot of things, and a, a lot of it obviously comes back to identity. And it, sure. uh, people use the the term idealistic a lot on the show, and I, I think what I've come to realize over doing this is like it's not necessarily idealistic. It's like it's something of a spiritual calling, right? It's like I figured out what I'm capable of. I figured out what I'm qualified to do. I'm figured out what my expertise is in and how to apply it to make the world a better place. Yeah. That doesn't sound idealistic to me at all. That sounds like how you're supposed to live life. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a religious person at all, that seems like what's in every text. I'm not, but yeah. like that's what they all tell me. <laughs> I mean, I so when I was a child in Mississippi, I think it was 1997, a show comes out called Daria. Um, <laughs> I love Daria. I love Daria, first too. So, oh, my God, yeah. I love that Six show. Six World. I, I could <laughs> quote that show to you line by line, episode by episode. When I was a child, God, I think I was 20 when that show came out. When I was in my early 20s, I watched that show and thought Daria was the hero. Hmm. Because Daria felt so smugly superior to everyone around her. And she saw ridiculous. She saw stupid people. They were there. But the way Daria kept herself safe was cynicism. Hmm. In telling herself that she was so much smarter than everyone else. And her life would eventually come down the line when she was away from all these people. What I believed that when I was younger. Hmm. And what I learned as as I got older is that courage isn't cynicism. Hmm. Uh, Courage is believing in things enough to change them Hmm. and to be involved with the world. So I watched Daria as an adult, and I actually identify a lot more with Quinn these days. Now, it's not to say Quinn is horrifically shallow at that age. She's terrible. She cares more about fashion than reality. But Quinn is also someone that puts her values into action. Mm. And my belief is if you did a Daria today, 
Daria would be closer to an 8chan nerd, and I think Quinn would eventually move past her superficial years and become <laughs> someone that changed the world. And it, it's, it's, it's just my philosophy. I think we've got to... It's bravest to be willing to be hurt, if that makes sense. I, I agree with most of that. I firstly would say I, I do agree with that if they remade it, that's how that would go. But I think that's more of an indictment of how kids have changed and how much better we've gotten. Yeah. Uh, mostly because like I, I think what is cool now, like what, what the Quins of the world are into now, are about Activision. making the world. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? Yeah, like the, the, the cheerleaders clean up the beach, right? Like, like that's the, the way that works now. Uh, and I, but sadly, I agree with you. Like Daria would be like a radicalized, like online troll for yeah. sure. There's a part of me that wants to like defend the idea of cynicism please, because please. because I'm certainly a cynic. Uh, but you I think seem so cheerful. That's uh, surprising. Well, and, but that's what's funny is like I I try to I, I guess I have a, a cheerful optimism about cynicism. In my search of pragmatism, I look at the cyn- the cynical people and like, oh, you're gonna live a terrible life. Like you will <laughs> you will be Dario. You will be alone. You will be like right. thinking you're above it. You will have projection of, of your future. And your best case scenario right. will be marrying that one cool guy that you thought was really hot. Trent. But, you know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. But like that's her best case scenario, yeah. and that looks horrible. And, and I don't want that for scary. anybody. Absolutely. But I also think like I look at those people and like. A lot of those people are the people who get things done. Like we need leaders for sure, yeah. but like the, the 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 career Washington political figures who are gonna oh like my god, just kill me now. Oh, like, for sure, yeah, right? But yeah. the, like that is the cynical pragmatist who's like, I don't really care who's in office, man. I just care about the data. I want to make sure nothing gets fucked up, and if it is fucked up, I'm gonna tell you about it. Okay. Fair and, point. And it's like, uh, boy, boy, do we need those people more than ever because things are getting that much more swayed. Like, I for me, no matter what happens, when I win in 2020. Mm. I am. My head is going I to like be. I like the held. way not if I'm into this. No, I'm. I. I. I gotta tell you. Like I ran in 2018. We did very well. 17,000 votes with a with a very disorganized campaign. We're coming back this time. We got more money. We got professional staff. We are. So I was, was going to ask you yeah, about this. The, yeah. So the first time you run, you you run mostly on that platform. I would yeah. imagine of like I'm a fighter, game brigade, cybersecurity. Uh, you know, Less ju- so. It's a uh, lot more this time. I hope okay. you see the difference in our Twitter message. Well, well, so because yeah. I, I I didn't follow much of your first campaign, but I oh. I followed I following this one rather closely. And it's like it seems to be a more more broadened, well-rounded kind of like yeah. Uh, it, it seemed like the first campaign was like I'm I'm running on I'm a, a specialist, yeah. not a, not a generalist, right? Yeah. This yeah. seems to be more of a I I'm a generalist with some expertise in some things, yeah. Well, uh, which I, I think is a better look for you. I think there's it's. It's hard to migrate a professional persona mm. from, hi, I'm rebel indie developer Brown Wood who's going to take on the system. Yeehaw. To I love that your, your rebel voice is very, you I go know. straight back to Mississippi. Right. I, can, I don't know if you, if you know, we have some rebellious folks here. We, we started yeah. the country. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that's true. So I, there's, it's hard to migrate that personality and figure out how to to bring it to a credible mm. persona to run for United States Congress. That mm. that took me a year or two to figure <laughs> that out. It's hard. Mm. And because I, I got to tell you, I just flat out don't respect most political campaigns. It mm. is the most meaningless garbage. I can't tell you how many people walked in my door wanting to get hired, and they've given me the... The, the song and dance of platitudes and bullshit, and uh, I, I just don't want to work with them. The woman running my digital team right now, she's one of the people that found a gawker. And I hope you can tell when you watch my Twitter, 
we've got a damn point of view, and we're going to give that to you. Now, Although, in fairness, that has not yeah, always gone well for Cocker. It's true. <laughs> very, very <laughs> we leave the Hulk Hogan stuff out. But, no, my point is it's, it's been an evolution, figuring this out. Um, when I decided to go into engineering full-time, it sure took me more than a year to figure out how to be a good engineer. In, in that same way, uh, you know, it's taken me a couple of years to figure out how to become a credible uh, political candidate. Mm. And I sometimes when I get tired on this job, I close my eyes and I try to visualize the 17,000 people that voted for me last time around. Mm. And we add another 10,000 onto that, 15, 20,000. I don't know what the turnout's going to be. But we just get a little bit more and we build on that success. I'm Congresswoman Brianna Wu. <laughs> so, you know, I feel really optimistic about the future. And it, of course, helps that Stephen Lynch is metaphorically shooting himself in the face every single day. <laughs> it's like So this this is one yes, of my questions I, yeah. I wanted to get to about kind of, uh, I, I guess, your, your, your switch towards politics. Yep. What is your beef with Stephen Lynch? He sucks, man. <laughs> He's the worst congressman. I'm uh, uh, but that's what I mean. There's no way you can tell me he's the worst congressman. He's like the we, worst maybe congressman in, in this state okay. by far. That's fair. Stephen Lynch is every... I'm not he, even sure if I'd go that far, Stephen Lynch. Just, just can, so we're clear. I don't, I don't can, want any okay, problems. This is my opinion. <laughs> you can quote me on this. Okay. Stephen Lynch is everything that is stale and deadening in the United States <laughs> Congress. <laughs> you heard it here first. Uh, all right. So... Uh, what led you to that conclusion, I guess? Come on, man. Look at his great example. Like, you got kids in cages. Mm. Kids in cages is the easiest damn slam dunk I've ever seen in my life. Should kids be separated from their parents and tortured by our I'm government? go with no for 200? I will go with no. <laughs> Does Stephen Lynch come out and go, this is bad? No, he goes down to the border, and what is his answer? He tweets a picture of those kids finger painting. <laughs> Give uh, me a damned break. I mean, come on. That's not moral leadership. Fair. But, but, but before that, like, obviously, I, I guess, you, so you decide, when did you decide to run the first time? That's a, maybe I should take the, the chronological. Uh, being honest, it was yeah. the night after Donald Trump won. I got on the train the next day and okay. I told Frank, uh, I'm running for Congress. He said, great, get and, me up. And did you, I guess... My, more of my question about Lynch is like, did you give any thought to like moving somewhere else in the state or moving to another place? Like no, to run? Of course, or, I'm going to run against Lynch. He's okay. a supervillain. I, I mean, I, there there are plenty of villainous characters out there, man. But like this I, guy, you can is, move to New Hampshire and run for a red seat. I don't know. This is a guy mm -hmm. that got into politics because he was pissed off that gay people wanted to participate in the St. Patrick's Day parade. This is a man that after. And I'm going to get emotional here. This is a man in the Matthew Shepard era. And Gwen Arujo, do you know about her? I do not. Gwen Arujo was a transgender woman mm. that um, she was living her life, becoming herself. And three men found out she was transgender. And they, they hit her in the head. And she slowly bled to death and died in an attic, and the killers were not prosecuted because they successfully employed a gay panic defense. In the Jesus. aftermath of that, in the aftermath of that, and Matthew Shepard, right here in Massachusetts, 
did Stephen Lynch go, you know what? I've been homophobic in my past. I'm sorry. Um, I'll fight for you too because gay people are my constituents too. Or did he, um, he actually, when he was in the state Senate, he tried to make hate crimes prosecution here in Massachusetts. He wanted to erase it. He passed a bill, tried to pass a bill uh, in the state house that would basically make it impossible for people like Gwen Arujo to get justice. That's a super villain. Uh, how closely were you following Lynch before you decided to run? I first got, I first became aware of him reading about Gwen Arujo. And then you were like, shit, that's my district? I've been upset about him for 20 years almost. Um, yeah, just... Has he, I, I guess, to, to try and give him some favor platform here, because I, I, I won't pretend I follow, like, South Shore politics super closely. Like, has he grown on that at all? He says he has, but, you know... Um, action speaks lo- louder than words, obviously. And it doesn't sound there, like it's been a ton of action. There's a game that a lot of Democrats in the U.S. Congress have figured out, mm. that when we have a supermajority and we know we can pass something, someone will write a bill, and, of course, everyone will pass it because, you know, you're in trouble if you don't. And Stephen Lynch, of course, will do that because mm. it would be a bad marketing move if he didn't. But when it comes to leadership, mm. when it comes to hiring people on a staff that are queer, when it comes to showing up to events, when it comes to the meat and potatoes work mm. of protecting people of color, protecting people with disabilities, protecting LGBT Americans... He gives you the lip service, but he doesn't lead. And it's personal to me. It hurts me to see that. I feel like you just eviscerated Steve Lynch so bad. I want to try to defend him, but I've really got nothing for him. I mean, what <laughs> can you say? This is kind um, of... <laughs> for those who can't see at home, I'm literally checking my notes like, did I have anything positive I could add there just to soften that blow? I'm like, not really. Like, everything I found in Stephen Lynch was kind of like you said. It's like, it's it's old party politics. Like, he'll vote the party line. He'll stay out of the way. He's been in office for fucking ever. Yep. Uh, I, he got L- elected after 9-11. Yeah. He voted us into a wreck. He sent my friends to get killed, voted against Obamacare. This is, I want to tell you, it's like, yeah, I want to tell you what it's like to vote against, uh, to run against Stephen Lynch. So I hold myself with high standards. I have to talk to people I don't agree with every single damn day. But you do it because you're not running to just represent women. Mm. You're not running to just represent LGBT people. I'm running to represent everyone in this district. White, black, gay, straight, working class, high tech, everybody, teachers. And you got to treat them with respect. And I don't think he does. There seems to be something of an old tradition of you can run for just certain people, right? Like yeah. you can run for blue collar white guys and college educated black people and women who are married to one of those two and people who are, you know what I mean? Like you can put, you can stitch together a little constituency and ignore everybody else. And yeah. like plenty of people have done that over time. Sure. What do you say to the criticism? Like you said yourself, like you're, you're an imported millionaire, right? Like right. I, I'm a child of millionaires who moved here in 2009 and now I want to represent the working class <laughs> of Massachusetts. Like that, that on its face sounds a little disingenuous even if you're homeless. running against the, the supervillain. I've also been homeless. I've had to borrow money to get life-saving surgery from mm-hmm. friends. Uh, one of the things I think is a really unique thing for me is I, I, feel, I feel like I'm a unique candidate in that I can walk into a lot of different rooms. Mm. 
Um, you want to go with me over to a repair shop? I'll be able to talk to you as much about my car as a mechanic can. Mm. I'll make a spark connection like that with them because that's the culture I grew up around. Mm. You talk to people that are serving in the military here in Massachusetts. My dad served in the military. I grew up on those naval bases. I'm comfortable in that room. Mm. You want to go to a room of venture capitalists or high-tech bros? I've worked in that for my whole career. I'm comfortable there. Feminist convention, comfortable there. Mm. I've had a really varied life. Mm. And I, I feel like it's given me unique ability to connect with people. So I would say, you know, like, like judge me on my positions. Mm. Judge me on who my friends are. Because my friends are not just, uh, you know, white <laughs> dudes in Quincy. <laughs> I, uh, I, something I, I think is kind of a hallmark of the most recent class of representatives is Diversity of the experiences of each individual person. Yeah. And whether that's uh, people like uh, Mac, uh, down in Brooklyn and Long Island, I was mentioning Katie out in uh, uh, the OC area of California. Obviously, you have AOC and Ayanna here at home. And, Love her. Uh, right. And it's just like you look through their stories and it's just like everything you could imagine from military service to being you know an international immigrant to you know, you know working your way through the restaurant industry to tech. And so I think something that was always intended for Congress is this variety of American life. Exactly. And what has become standard in my life is like it's a bunch of, you know, it's a bunch of lawyers, maybe a lawyer, few finance people. Lawyer, businessman, lawyer, businessman, yeah. lawyer, businessman. Maybe a doctor white, sprinkled in there. Maybe a doctor every now and then who became a businessman, lawyer, oh, exactly. businessman. <laughs> uh no, I mean, I, I, I think, something I think about a lot, can I tell you a story? Please this is do. an embarrassing story. Story's so my I, favorite. <laughs> I hired a studio filled with women because mm. I saw a bunch of women not being able to get jobs. For the record, that's one of the things that Gamergate bros like hate you for. It's oh, like, absolutely. Well, see, she just wants to hire an all-female staff and make you know, the video game industry a bunch of bitches, and they're just going to take everything over, man. <laughs> So this is a this is a story about uh, that that happening. So we hire a bunch of women: women lead animator, women lead gameplay designer, women lead uh, play tester. Uh, me, so material. It was it was great. <laughs> it was great. So we're sitting there concentrating on um, uh, animations, facial expressions, hair. I spent a lot of time <laughs> figuring out how to animate pretty hair in a video game, and uh, I end up firing my lead modeler. And uh, my husband, Frank Wu, has four Hugo Awards, the most prestigious award in science fiction art. Mm. And I go, Frank, uh, you got to step up. Can you model us some sets? He's like, all right. I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to figure out. And Frank, none of the women mm. on our staff, none of us, gave a damn about spaceships. Like, I care about it, but just to be honest, I cared a lot more about the, the writing, mm. personally. So Frank goes through, if you look at our game, it's not, um, there's like a standard set of genres you have in a video game. Like you've got a sewer level, you've got an office level, you've got a library <laughs> yes. level. Um, the stuff Frank designed is different than anything that's been in any video game. It's really beautiful stuff. When the reviews come out, did people praise the hair? No one said anything about that. Everyone praised Frank's <laughs> spaceship. So this is my message to you. Yeah. This is a situation where diversity mm. helped a team of women ship a better product. Mm. That applies to me and applies to everyone. Congress is going to be a lot stronger when all of us have a voice. One of the things, I guess, that comes up that, that is certainly applicable to your race here uh, is there's been a lot of backlash to that new diverse freshman class challenging incumbent Democrats. Of course. And I, I, 
I find it funny that a lot of Democratic voters are like, well, as they should be, the party needs to stay strong and protect itself. I'm like, that is not how democracy works. And as the party that's supposed to be about fucking democracy, maybe we should, I don't know, be democratic. <laughs> uh, but I digress. Yeah. How do you feel about the, I guess, running for the nomination of a party who has essentially flatly told you, like, don't run against our people. Like, we, we like the Stephen Lynch's of the world. Stay the fuck out of the way. And, like, when we have a place for you, we'll have a place for you. Why should you be surprised when uh, the powers that be protect themselves? Uh, the status quo would not be the status quo if it was not very skilled at making sure it remained that way. So if, I mean, if you walk into the game industry and you understand they'll say what they have to say, but they're going to watch out for their bottom line, you're never going to be disappointed. If you walk into Boston Democratic politics and realize they'll say what they have to say about women's rights, Mm. they'll do their song and dance. They'll say they care about people of color. At the end of the day, they're going to back their boy that's, you know, another white dude. Um, I'm not disappointed by that. I expect it. So why do you why run for their nomination? Well, what's the choice? Sit run as an independent? Sit no, I'm I'm a I'm a Democrat. I love our party. I think we're having a discussion finally about the direction our party needs to go. Now for myself, I'm an Elizabeth Warren Democrat. Hmm. I like plans, I like data, I like thought out concrete. Uh, plans about how we need to tackle big structural problems. Mm. I'm not afraid to think big. And my contribution, my plan to get stuff done is not to bitch on Twitter 24-7. It's to get out there and get elected. Well, (laughs) (laughs) there's. I think I would critique the left sometimes that we seem to conflate uh, Facebooking with voting. Absolutely. And uh, (laughs) we've got to get out there and get stuff done. I think you're seeing a generational shift in the, the Democratic Party right now where Maybe the Nancy Pelosi playbook was good enough a decade ago. I think today we're looking for real change. Mm. And what does real change look like to you? I guess big solutions to big problems. Mm. Um, climate change is a perfect example. I'm canvassing in Quincy this weekend, and I'm looking at houses that I'm certain are going to be underwater in another 20 or 30 years. Physically, not financially. Physically <laughs> underwater. You know, For those of you listening in the middle of America. Yeah, you know, if we wanted to be really timid about decarbonization, we should have done it uh, when Nancy Pelosi first got elected to Congress. And, you know, she she sits on couch with Newt Gingrich, and she's like, we got the answers. It's coming. Don't you worry. And nothing gets done. Hmm. We're at a point now where the house is on fire, and we got to put it out with the hose. So, the greenhouse, in fact. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... Yeah, I'm talking about big, pragmatic solutions to problems, moving to EVs, moving to renewable energy, investing in public transportation. These are policy things that make sense to me. I don't believe in forgiving college debt Hmm. because I have some fantasy about, you know, kumbaya and we're all going to wrap arm in arm and be friends. Uh, I see that when I went to college, I'm one generation older than you. I'm not Hmm. a boomer. When I went to college, I paid $2,400 a semester. <laughs> yeah, I see. <laughs> right. Your generation oh, has been exploited. Fuck. Yeah, you've been cheated. Yeah. You've been bamboozled. And it's not right. And it's a common sense bet on the next generation to look at forgiving student debt. So mm. I, I just, I think, I think the party can do more than the stand for the rich and powerful. 
I'm curious, how long did it take for you to, I guess, broaden your knowledge on some of those other issues? Because like, like you said, you, you start to feel like, cool, I'm running kind of like a, on cybersecurity and a couple of other things that are central to me. Yeah. But then there are some of these other things like I, I, how central was climate to your campaign three years ago versus like how much have you learned on that? I think um, it's certainly been a lot more hyper-local knowledge that's happened. Mm. I mean, I, as someone running for federal office, my uh, skill set is best suited for federal service, mm. right? Cybersecurity. Uh, you could certainly do stuff at the state, at the state level, but I'm, I'm better. <laughs> It'd be pretty useless. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd, well our, our, DA, our Department of Health uh, server could use a lot of work, but the, the bottom line is I'm qualified to deal with that mm. in a way people in Congress are not. Um, what I think I would say is there's a level of hyper-knowledge locally that I've had to develop. Really good case in point. Uh, I was doing call time a couple of days ago, and I meet the guy in uh, Bridgewater that ran the uh, the, opio- uh, the opioid policies and detox uh, programs in prison mm. there in the 70s and 80s. Um, that's not something I had strong opinions about four years ago. Mm-hmm. It's something I have strong opinions about now. So it's uh, it's really, it's it's weird because a lot of people that run for office, they go from a local profile and take it national. Mm-hmm. I've had to go the other way where I have a relatively large national profile and I'm having to move it local. Mm-hmm. I think it's really notable that I get covered in the New York Times a lot more than the Boston Globe. <laughs> that's a problem I've really been working to solve and it's frustrating. And I, I guess, what have, you, what have you learned that you feel like is, is going to be able to push you over the top this time where you feel like you can kind of bring that back <laughs> locally? Because that, that, it becomes a problem when you have you know, 500,000 people who follow you, but only you know, 1,200 of them live in your district. No, you're dead on. Uh, so the thing that I made the biggest mistake on the first time out um, is I come from the tech world. And mm. the startup formula is one I'm very comfortable with. You've worked startups. Yeah. This is the best feeling in the world. You've got an idea. Everyone ships in. You mm. dig. You figure out as you go. And eventually, you ship something. Mm. The problem is the startup formula doesn't work in politics. Mm. Because in two years, the race is over. And what you don't know has already killed you. Yeah. The biggest It less- might fuck up your next run. It might fuck <laughs> up your next run. So for me, the biggest lesson I've learned is you got to hire qualified campaign uh, professionals. Um, and that's the lesson I've, I've, I've learned. Is you've got to hire people with experience. And I, I think the, the results speak for themselves. You look at the race we're running, we're fundraising much strongly, much more strongly this time. We raised more from individuals than Stephen Lynch did in, in 2000. Uh, in Q1 of this year. Um, wow. Yeah, we're getting early endorsements that are amazing. Blue America just endorsed uh, me. Uh, it looks like I'm going to be on Young Turks uh, in, a, in a week. Um, yeah, we're running a professional campaign this time. Mm. And maybe it's just the startup mindset, but I, it, it gives me zero stress or guilt to not learn something, to not know something and screw it up. Every time I've ever typed code in my career, it's never compiled the first time. It only, <laughs> it only matters if you have the skill to learn from mistakes. Mm. And I, I think that's something I'm pretty good at. And my last politically-based question yes. here, uh, I guess it, it rolls nicely off the endorsements question, is where do you kind of place yourself on that 
ever in this this political spectrum of the left where there it used to be there was like three check marks right you were yeah. like a, a centrist almost arguably a, a center right like closeted Republican yeah. there was a, a you were center left maybe you know neoliberal esque you know liberalism is the our future and then you had the, the far left like I'm actually a communist <laughs> and now there there seems to be like a, a lot of I guess kind of uh, hash marks in between there. Yeah. You, you mentioned you know, Young Turks is endorsing you. Somebody else. Uh, no, I see. I'm going on oh, there. Go, we're sorry, working sorry. on the Justice <laughs> Democrats endorsement. Uh, so. But so we, we have a couple of Justice Dev- uh, Democrats, a couple of DSA folks who are coming on the show, and so we, we've kind of sprinkled the spectrum here. Where would you say you kind of fit along that run? I'm an Elizabeth Warren Democrat, okay. right? I got big, bold ideas. I want big structural change. Mm. You know, I want to focus on the working class. And I want to solve that. But I'm not going to sit there and pout and be like, oh, you know, communism is the answer to everything and Mm. capitalism is the enemy. That's just not my philosophy. I think we've got to take a hard look at these problems and come up with reasonable common sense plans to address them. Mm. Uh, I'm fact-based. I'm not afraid to compromise. This is what drives me just nuts about our current political dynamics. As a centrist, you're talking my language. I love compromises. (laughs) Compromises in the name of progress is my favorite way to do politics. You know this. (laughs) When you walk into an engineering meeting, have Mm. you ever gotten every feature you've wanted? Ever. (laughs) Not once. Not once. I'm I'm considered damn good at my job because most of what I do is convince engineers to give me more than they should. That's a skill. (laughs) And still, I usually walk out about 60%. I am the damn owner of the company, right? (laughs) And I don't get what I want. You walk in, and this is what I just fundamentally don't get about politics. Look at healthcare. Mm. Healthcare is a perfect example. What is the fucking mission objective with healthcare? It is to get people insured get them coverage, and stop them from getting bankrupt along the way. Now, or it's to get, make sure that the companies that currently insure them have good profit so that they'll fund your next That's campaign. not my mission. But <laughs> that's that's my, my objective. Mm. Now, I've looked at the data, and like Elizabeth Warren, I think that uh, Medicare for All is very clearly the way to get there. Mm. I'm going to vote for that. I'm going to advocate for that. I'm going to work to make that happen. Mm. But... If there are compromises along the way that still get people the coverage, do you think I'm going to pack up my toys and go home because I didn't get 100% of what I want? Hell no. I am an engineer. That's not how we think. It's about getting the mission done. Iterative thought. Iterative. Iterative. Well, that's, but I also think something I've seen in the Democratic Party is we tend to pre-negotiate <laughs> ourselves away. Hmm. So I think we've got to come in with plans, with an idea, with a coalition, Medicare for all, that is a straightforward idea. Mm. I believe in it. I think it's cost effective. We need to advocate for that. Um, and I just, that's, it's just how I think, if that makes sense. I think it does. I think a lot of people are a little skeptical of that brand of Democrat these days because there there's something to that idea of like like you said the, the pre negotiation we've heard for so long, which was like okay, I'm willing to compromise. I'm like okay, I hear that. And then you come to the table and it's like, well, I know where you guys are going to be. So here's fifty percent of what right. we were thinking already. Let me give that back to you. And now I'm going to start from you know, take Medicare for all for example. It's like instead of starting with Medicare for all, we started with the ACA and then we worked our way backward from there. So yep. some people aren't covered for pre existing. Conditions and some companies have religious exceptions, and all of a sudden, a lot of the countries not covered, and the ones who are have trouble signing up, and it's overpriced. And like what should be a really good idea becomes a botched one. Right. And so, we're, I guess that's where's, why God where's the bless line? God bless the DSA for out there advocating <laughs> straight socialism, right? Because it it gives 
It's like saying, okay, if you're going to sit there and do nothing, how about we pass this bill over here? (laughs) We should get rid of all companies in America. It's not what I believe. But I love that there is a faction that is... I I love that there is a powerful left out there that's Mm. advocating for that. So, yeah, we just need more voices in the room, basically. I mean, it's clear that centrist Democrats like Lynch are not getting it done. They're failing. Well, and and so I guess this this is what I find funny is like, in in my estimation of the spectrum, right, right, Warren is the centrist, right? Like yeah. the there's the DSA left that's saying like, fuck it, let's go full socialism, socialize everything in the country, like everything should be free, like, and I'm I'm, I'm having a DSA member on later this week, and we'll talk about that. But it's like that to me is important because the pragmatism of it is that then the Warren Democrats can come in and say, I am the reasonable one, I am the middle ground. Yeah. Let's go for. Medicare for all, here's how we'll pay for it. We're also, we'll refund most student loan debt, but we're not going to wipe it all away. Exactly. And it's like, that becomes a reasonable centrist position. 100% on board with everything you said. And that is what you I you can get people like Stephen Lynch behind that. You can, <laughs> but I, the problem is Stephen Lynch is taking up a slot. Right. He's a seat warmer. He's doing nothing. Right. We have He's, to wait for him for seven years to come around where you'll vote for that on day one. I, I would vote for that on day one. There's this bucket of, I mean, uh, there are things like, you know, working class helping the working class, college loans, you know, student debt forgiveness, Medicare for all, all that, 100% there. So there's that generalized, like, do you need another soldier on the left? Does mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren need another vote to have, help her pass a bill? One I'm last there. door to knock on. Like, you, you can count on my vote. You even got to come we're, by the we're office. There. We're good. But then there's this tax subcommittee mm. where I'm unbelievably qualified to help save this country from Russian interference in our elections Mm. to stop China from stealing our information, uh, our intellectual property. And that's really important. So there's, do you see what I mean? I think Uh, this is something we need. Like I said before, I think the the diversity of the coalition is arguably the strongest argument for why, like, the Democrats' resurgence is important here in 2020. Absolutely. It's like how we've started to grow the party is more representative and reflective of America. And so long as the establishment will allow that to happen, I think we're we're going to shit. My big fear following Trump's election was nobody would learn anything from on the left and that we'd get four more years of Donald Trump after that and then it's going to be, we're not going to be able to fix it if Trump's re-elected. I don't think that's going to happen. I really don't. Currently, I, currently I'm still in very real fear. Of it. I'd say it's a coin flip at best. But what I will say is I'm looking at the left. If we do win, I think the only way it happens is through this empowerment of this diverse grassroots yeah. kind of class of candidates. And you're seeing yeah. that at the presidential scale with you know, newcomers, you know, Beto or Pete or Pete, you know, even Andrew Yang, of, you know, <laughs> talking way up. There. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I think that uh, that's. I love Andrew Yang with. because he's he's pragmatic. He's he's not coming for the right or the left. Yeah. No, he's not the guy I'm going to vote for. Not right, not right, forward. But I, I'd <laughs> work with him. This is, and this is the last thing I'll say here. Um, I think a lot of the older Democrats are playing with an old playbook. Mm. You know, I think they believe the elections are won with persuasion by persuading this middle. I don't think that's true anymore. I think elections are won by passion. Mm. Yeah, I think you've got to have people out there that are firing people up and making them excited to go knock on doors. For me personally, if Biden wins the nomination, <laughs> I will go knock on doors for Biden. I will drive to New Hampshire. That's nice I of you. do what I got to do. <laughs> but am I going to be as excited about doing that as I will if Elizabeth Warren wins that nomination? Of course not. Right. So I think that the problem the left makes is we we don't 
bring people that we can be passionate about electing. So I just think it's a, I think it's a, a changing world. Uh, I'll ask you this final question, I guess, on passion before we, we get to my, my last segment here. Sure. Uh, what is, what's been your favorite kind of part of doing this? Like what's, I mean, running, running for office is a grueling mission. It's I, fine. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm interviewing seven candidates in 14 days and yep. that alone has been a, 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 an undertaking for me. I and bet. so I can only imagine what it's like hitting the campaign trail now for going on three years. You what's been your favorite part of it? I think, well, there's the personal part of it. Mm. I, I think I'm a better, happier person mm. after having this job. I, I really do. It's forced me to, it's forced me to learn to connect more with strangers in a way a, a nerdy engineer maybe doesn't have. Mm. It's like I've got these <laughs> two sides of my brain. And I, I think I'm a better person at this point. And I wake up happier than I, I, I think I've ever felt. Um, and I love feeling the, I love that in the Trump era, I go to bed every single night and I sleep well because I'm doing what I can to fix this mess. The, the other part of it that I really enjoyed is it's a deeply intellectually rewarding uh, career path. Mm. I'll give you an example. Um, so I am an able-bodied person. I've never really thought much about how disability benefits are apportioned uh, before. Um, this is something I know a lot more about, the way disability courts function and learning about this area of policy. It's that every single day. Mm. You learn things all the time that are, are teaching you about areas of policy you've just never known about before. So. If you care, if you're a genuinely intellectually curious person, this is a fantastic job. <laughs> well, maybe I'll have to consider that then, because I, I joke all the time, I'm a passionless person, but I'm a very curious person. Like, yeah. I, I don't care enough about anything, but I care about everything. Right. Uh, so jo jobs with great breath are perfect. I love it. I uh, love it. So I look forward to that. I want to take a quick break here, and I'm going to bring it back, and we will do Random People, which is our, our final segment here. All right. people uh, we're gonna jump to our final segment here random people which is my favorite part of the show uh, the way this works is I have a list here in front of me of a hundred different types of people Brianna is gonna give me three numbers one through a hundred then I'm going to tell Brianna each of those types of people you're gonna give me your first three thoughts on those people I get one follow-up question and then we'll send you on your way to enjoy the rest of your life <laughs> sounds great 9 19 and 99 9 19 and 99 do you have a thing with nines I, I there's a uh, the villain from uh, my video game her name was crimson nine so okay that makes sense there we go feeling villainous today all right first up Hufflepuffs Give Hufflepuffs. Me your first three thoughts on Hufflepuffs. I feel like Slytherins are are misunderstood. Like Slytherins have some uh, some uh, good qualities. So Hufflepuff, hundred percent down with that. But uh, I am certainly not one of them. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll skip ahead to nineteen here, which is singers. 
Are you a singer yourself? I am a singer. I'm a bad singer, but uh, you want to go get my uh, Boxster? We'll put the uh, windows down. We'll sing Montel <laughs> Jordan's This Is How We Do It. Uh, that's your go-to? That's my go-to. Come okay. on. It's the best song ever made. Give me a break. I, I don't hate you it. You were not a teenager in the 90s, and I pity you because the 90s were made for being a teenager. I, I will have you know, in yeah. my hometown, we rented out the community center in my neighborhood, and we threw a dance party for my 13th birthday, <laughs> which became a monthly staple for two years. Uh, Every dance party with "This Is How We Do It" by Montel there fucking Jordan. There we go. There we go. Uh, so That's plenty of plenty of respect in my catalog for Montel Jordan. All right, we're gonna scroll down to ninety nine. Uh, oh, and this is a perfect one to end on. I I will tell you, having done this segment with everybody who come on the show, every single time one of the numbers ends up being somebody that lines up perfectly with them. This seems good. Bernie Sanders. What are your first thoughts on Bernie Sanders? I like Bernie Sanders. I like his passion. Uh, I feel like. Uh, I've been listening to Bernie Sanders since Air America when he would come on the Tom Hartman show and I was listening and I, I was in Mississippi the in the Bush era. So <laughs> Air like, America? Air America. This okay. is left wing radio. Okay. It's okay. it's so I am living in Mississippi uh, during the Bush administration. And I'm losing my damn mind. <laughs> my next door neighbor's got a cutout of George Bush in her house. That's creepy as fuck. It is weird. Uh, so Air America is where uh, Sam Cedar and Mark Marin and Jeleen Garofalo. It's, uh, it's Young Turks was on Air America. It was, no uh, it was okay. left-wing talk radio. Uh, and Bernie Sanders came on uh, during that time on the Tom Hartman show. And I remember listening and, and going, this is a guy that makes sense. This is a guy that understands the structural problems with our country. Um, I love Bernie because I think he's right on the issues. I would say I think Bernie, and this is Naomi Klein saying this, not me, but Naomi Klein said in her book, uh, her last book, Bernie seems to have a real blind spot on racial issues mm. and on women's issues. And I kind of agree with that. He kind mm. of just papers over what our lived experience is. Um, and one of the reasons I like Elizabeth Warren is I feel like she gets the policies right, mm. but without that kind of blind spot about mm. what women face. And the problem with Bernie is he'll be like... Um, you know, reproductive justice, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm for that. That's solved. That's done. <laughs> and it's just... It's a rubber stamp issue. It, well, I wouldn't say that, but I would say it's more personal. Mm. Like if you're talking about reproductive justice, right. you're talking about if a woman is going to feel autonomy mm. over her own body. Right. They have choices in her life. So um, one of the things I, I, I would like to see Bernie do, because he's number three, mm. he's doing very well, I, I would love to see Bernie grow and to be able to speak a little bit more to what um, to what people outside of his personal experience are feeling because mm. I think um, it, I, I think it's the only bad part about him as far as policy is dead on about everything I, I get the impression from him that like his his calculation on it is the these policies will do more to lay the groundwork that solve things for women, for people of color, for queer, for all these different populations. 
uh, and the criticism of him from all these populations is, well, yeah, that's cool, but then, like, what else? And his answer to that is, well, who cares what else? Because if this doesn't happen, whatever else we'll put in won't matter. Yeah. And I, I'm very stuck in that crossroads because I, I agree with him, right? Yeah. Like, if we don't, you know, Pete Buttigieg speaks on this occasion about, like, making a constitutional amendment to address certain issues, right? Yeah. Like, that sounds like a crazy idea to somebody born in 1990. Like, we haven't done that, you know what I mean? But those the, that's the kind of scale Bernie works at. I'm like, okay, like, I'm seeing this, and I'm seeing that kind of change being necessary so that we don't we don't have the same issues we have with queer rights, right? Yeah. We're, we're going back and forth all the time. Yeah. But like you said, the problem is it's like, you, you just sound a little tone deaf to it sometimes. Yeah. Where it's just like, like oh, yeah, 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 we'll sweep it away. It'll be fine. Like, uh, we've got people for that. It's like he... He says he believes in women's reproductive health care rights. Mm. And then he says things like Planned Parenthood is the establishment that tried to take me down. And, well, it's just, it's, his lack of lived experience makes him not understand how hurtful that is. Mm. But at the same time, it's about substance. It's about the policies you're going to advocate. Like, God knows if we elect Joe Biden, we're going to have a few gaffes. So um, what I see is the Bernie Sanders playbook. I I think that the beautiful part of AOC and Ayanna Presley, and I hope I would be included on that list, is that we're leaders. Mm. They're standing up with our lived experience Mm. that that can kind of work off that playbook too. We're all moving towards that goal. So, um, you know, Bernie is my second choice in this election. I, I feel blessed to have two top choices right. this time around. So there it is. Let me, I, I will go through my, my one follow-up question on each of these. I'll start with Bernie then because we're on the topic already. Sure. Uh, I guess when when you comment on those blind spots, how do you feel about, I, I guess, the answer for him essentially being, well, if I'm president, then, like, the goal is to continue to empower that wave of people like yourself who, like, will kind of help those blind spots, right? Like, if I have a blind spot on, like, women's issues, I would hope the Ayanas and Brianas and AOCs of the world will, like, call that to Bernie's attention. And, you know, yeah. the you know the many black support, you know, Bernie is number one in many polls with black support. Yeah. Uh, you know, trailing Biden and a couple others. And it's like, I would hope many of those people would point out black issues to him along the way and that yeah. wouldn't that blind spot necessarily wouldn't be a functional one so much as a character one and yeah maybe f- for me and maybe this is my own bias so mm. i'm bringing into this but one of the things this i've very learned bias show. <laughs> the fair point one of the things i learned from gamergate is yeah i cannot tell you how many hundreds of conversations i've had with industry men mm. that swear up and down they care about hiring more women they're not sexist, this, that, and the other thing. And at the end of the day, uh, their studios end up hiring all white dudes. Mm. It, it's everywhere. Um, so for me personally, um, there's there's a, a suspicion there when someone is speaking with that language. But at the same time, it's like this isn't... Yeah, I feel like I'm being so negative on him when mm. I, I really deeply believe in the beliefs that he's fighting for. Well, so I guess yeah. that's part of my question is yeah. like, I, I agree the skepticism is valid, but then I look at the people he's empowered, and it's like, well, he empowers, the, you know, a- AOC is his number one fan, right? Absolutely. Rashida Tlaib is right behind her, and, Absolutely. You know, and you go on down the list, and it's like, well, it, the people he has blind spots for are people of color and women, and the people who support him most and he empowers most right. are women of color. So I, <laughs> I have a tough time fair. believing that <laughs> they're going to be, like, a problem for him. I think that's fair, and I guess I just do have to say, it feels so weird that women have to justify right. um, believe 
believing in a woman first. Like I like Elizabeth Warren a no, lot I, I, more. I, I, that that's a fair argument to me. Yeah. Like if, if that's just like, it, I have like, to justify Elizabeth Warren is more like me. Let's yeah. get real. She's nerdy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know. Um, but you know, if you look, shit, at Elizabeth Warren represents my state. I'm pretty drawn to yeah. most people. I, I spoke earlier about my love of Massachusetts. I think we get politics right here more often, than pretty much anywhere in the country. Stephen Lynch, uh, uh, notwithstanding, that, that, in that, my that's opinion, that's Governor Baker as <laughs> well. Yes, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a few others. So there, you know, there it is. Um, you know, look, oh, God, God, I, I, I will end on saying this. I go to bed every night praying that either Elizabeth or Bernie wins this nomination because I will get to go to the polls and believe in a president wholeheartedly without reservation for the first time in my life. You think I felt that way about Hillary Clinton? Because I didn't. didn't. I'm certain of that. You think I felt that way about John Kerry? Because I didn't. You feel that way about Obama? Obama, I guess The first time I felt pretty good. The second time I was kind of iffy on it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, Yeah. I I wasn't going to vote for Romney, but like. It wasn't great. I felt like Obama did a really good job on, I mean, it, w- it was so meaningful seeing our first black president, mm. especially growing up in Mississippi. That mattered to me. And he was he was a damn good president, drone policy notwithstanding. <laughs> so. Drone policy and immigration aside, Obama is phenomenal. And <laughs> maybe we should have thrown a few more bankers in jail after uh, the Wall Street uh, yes, crash. Yes, well, yeah. that's... <laughs> That's that entire era I kind of just try to black out of that. Absolutely. All right. I'll ask the last two follow We've been talking for here. two hours. I was oh going to say, God. I got to get you out yeah. of here. Yeah. Uh, why? You said you're a Slytherin. I said I feel like Slytherin is, is poorly maligned. I think so I what, what house are you in? I, I will admit, generationally, I am not as big a Harry Potter fan. As we were doing so good, people. Brianna. You had my full support. I, I've read the, the millennial books. vote is running away from I've you as we them. speak. I've read them. I like the books. <laughs> I am not as familiar. So Hufflepuff. Oh, okay. So as long as you read them, that's fine. Yeah, I've read the books. I've okay. seen the movies. Uh, like I feel like Slytherin. It's the people like with with passion and want the power. And Hufflepuff tends to forgive me if I'm wrong here. They're the people a little bit more touchy feely oh, yeah. and very Mushy emotional, and and helpful, very sensitive. I would not. Des- I would describe myself as compassionate. Mm-hmm. I would not describe myself as sensitive <laughs> at all. <laughs> so I, I myself am a, am a self-described Slytherin. Uh, yeah. I've, I've come to that realization earlier. My girlfriend is a Hufflepuff. It's a nice yeah. balance. There we go. <laughs> my my husband is probably. Closer Hufflepuff <laughs> too. So. The last question I have for you, uh, singer. You said yes. Montel Jordan is your jam. Yes. Is that also your karaoke song, or do you have another karaoke? I have song? many karaoke songs. What's your go-to on. karaoke song? Oh my god! So this is the thing. I hate normal music. Katy Perry, I hate her. <laughs> okay. Tay, I hate her. I love dance music. EDM. Okay. I can tell you, All right, we can talk. every EDM group ever done, I got mad feelings about it. So you are you doing at, like RL Grime karaoke? Oh like my what God. is happening? I could completely We're do doing that. like Flume Records up Come there? Come on. 2000, uh, anything Carl Cox did, give me Car- the Oh, you're going, oh, so you, you're, in the, you're in the crates, not the not yeah. the digital library. I yeah, see you. Yeah, Carl Cox, Fatboy Slim. Like all of that. All right. Like, give it to me. All Come right. On. No. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're going to go out dancing then at some point. This is going to be a good time. Oh, yeah. I'm oh, into yeah. this. Thank you so much for doing this. This it's has been a awesome. a pleasure. I tell you, most uh, interviews, I walk in, I'm like, when the hell is this going to be over? I feel, <laughs> like, I feel like I made a friend today. I, so. I, I try to keep it light. I try to make it a good time. Uh, <laughs> I end by asking everybody the exact same question. Who do you hope hears this episode? Like, who do you hope hears the story, this conversation? Like, we touched on a lot today. We All sorts of stuff, both locally and nationally. Who are you hoping hears this? I got to be selfish. I hope 
voters in District 8 do. I hope people in Massachusetts that may not know me may not be happy with Stephen Lynch. Uh, I hope you'll hear this, and yeah, reach out to me. I hope to talk soon. Awesome. Uh, for those who don't know at home, where is Massachusetts District 8? Where, do, where is that yes, line? Yes, is south of is south of Boston. It is this weird-shaped district. It's, uh, it's, uh, it goes from Cohasset, okay. Hull, Quincy, a little bit of Boston, West Roxbury, okay. Dedham, Norwood, <laughs> Westwood. Then it goes all the way down. It goes Stoughton, Brockton, and then <laughs> okay. all the way down to Bridgewater, East Bridgewater, and West Bridgewater. So, right. so if you live in any of those places, if you're out there listening. Oh, I've left out about 50 towns. <laughs> so there we go. Uh, I know you are listening because, in my opinion, everybody listens to this podcast. Please be sure to check out Brianna Wu. It's uh, Brianna Brianna Wu. Brianna Wu. Brianna for Congress. Oh, Brianna Wu for Congress on Twitter. On the internet machine and Brianna Wu on Twitter. All right, Brianna Wu on Twitter, Brianna Wu for Congress on the internet machine. Uh, go check out her website. Go check out the platform. Uh, you can go find her and catch up with everything that she's got going on and the campaign. If you happen to live in the district, please do show up and vote. That's always important, no matter who you are voting for. Uh, like I said, thanks again for doing this, and thanks again for everybody listening and supporting the show at home. Till next time, I'm Mitch Gaines. This was Brianna Wu, and we're all those people. Thanks for having me. Bye. Cheers. notes here after the episode if you enjoyed the episode please 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 rate and review the show wherever you listen really helps other people find the show and that's sort of essential to us being able to do a second season if you really love the episode or you just want to support the show you can also buy one of our political people t-shirts or some of our other merch available on our merch page at mitchgains.com if you have feedback for the show i'm all ears my twitter dms are always open but you can also email me at mitchgains at gmail.com prefer speaking to writing me too that's why i started a podcast you can leave us a voice message if you prefer at the link in the show notes here. Just note that your feedback, questions, and opinions may be used in a future episode. I want to give a special thanks to East Boston Public Library for allowing us to record several of our episodes on location there. Make sure you thank and hug your local librarian. Special thanks also to Phil Elam of the Justice Boys and Amy Bezunartea, hopefully I got that right, for our intro and our outro music, respectively. Both songs are fittingly titled Those People, and we'll post links in the show notes as to where you can find them. Lastly, and most especially perhaps, I want to give a special thank you to our executive producer, Kayla Scheitlin, without whom, and I mean this quite literally, none of this would be possible. I also want to give a final thanks to all those people who have been supporting this project from its earliest days, way before we released, including Irvin Bailey, Crystal Roloff, Nicole Hodnett, Shobo the God, and countless others that I'm missing here. I'm Mitch Gaines, and thank you as always for checking out this episode of Those People, a podcast with people about people.